cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marshall McLennan Agency and the host of Chatting Cyber. Today, we have two cyber celebrities with us. Uh, first, Sherry Davidoff, uh, LMG's CEO and recent author of the book, Data Breaches. As well as we have Michael Kleinman. Michael Kleinman is Special Counsel at Freed Frank's Data Strategies security and privacy practice. Boy, that's a mouthful. Thanks for joining, guys. Thanks so much for having Thanks us, for having Mark. Us. Absolutely, absolutely. I was really excited to have both of you be on the first ever dual uh, cyber celebrity podcast. So this is going to be a very exciting one, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so, so before we dive deep down into the weeds, you know, Sherry, I, I, I want to understand how does a a, a young girl growing up in a field that was dominated by, you know, males in cybersecurity end up uh, studying an MIT and becoming a real authority in, in the forensic space. Yeah, well, I applied for a job for people who wanted to stay up late and eat pizza. And I was like, I am qualified for this. I'm a night owl and I love pizza. And it turned out this was uh, around 99, 2000 at MIT, they were looking for people who wanted to monitor the network at night and respond to cybersecurity incidents. And so it was just a fascinating place to really cut my teeth. And I stayed in cybersecurity um, really just to earn a living until I was gonna figure out like what I wanted to do with my career. Uh, since um, in fact, the word cybersecurity didn't even exist at that time. Um, and then after that, I went to work for the Boston Children's Hospital right when HIPAA first came out. And so really just ended up being in the right place at the right time and growing with the industry. Um, and now today, I don't know if I told you, I'm actually writing a book on ransomware, ransomware response, which is coming out later this year. So I really felt like this topic was very timely and I'm excited to speak with you about it. Excellent. Well, maybe when the book comes out, you can come back on and we can chat about it a little bit more. Oh, I'd love that. So, so Michael, um, I, I flip the same question over to you, being in one of the most prestigious law firms in the world. I mean, what did, how, how did you get to certain a point at such a young age, um, really understanding and focusing around cyber risk? Keep the compliments coming, Mark. Um, you know, I, I think I can say this all started with sort of a dramatic tale of, um, you know, rebelling against a parent, my father worked 30 plus years as a manager of information systems and a chief information officer at a fortune 500 company and i dropped out of a computer science class after about a week uh senior year in college um so you know but it's, it's interesting i think as always when this happens you sort of you know we become our parent uh I, i'm my route is a little bit different but i spent about um uh, almost a decade and a half uh, in the legal profession, uh, mostly as a litigator. And about four, four and a half years ago, um, I started to see in my litigation practice that more and more of my matters related to data, privacy, protection, enforcement, 
Um, and at Street Frank, we have a, a very large and well-known M&A practice, and I was doing a lot of litigation and other risk assessment work on deals, and I started to see about the same, th- same time as some of our clients sort of a large hole um, in a newish risk or, you know, at least something that people were starting to pay attention to, uh, which was cyber and then data privacy as well. Um, and so I've spent uh, the last four, four and a half years building out um, a, a practice there uh, in terms of risk management and uh, counseling clients on sort of all the developing facets of cyber and data privacy, which change every day. Seems like the hour at this point. <laughs> right. So, so Sherry, um, you know, talking about changing within the hour, um, ransomware. It's one of the greatest challenges we face as a society today. What are the changes that are happening currently? And have we made any progress trying to beat these bad guys at their own game? Well, we're always making progress. The problem is they're always making progress too, and so it's an arms race. Um, But I like to start with the latest news because there's always something new happening. So right before we were talking, um, I was looking at the latest on the Kia ransomware case. So here's an example of an automobile manufacturer who was taken down by ransomware. And you can see the ripple effects of this. Their Their online services were cut off which you might not think would be a big deal, but now customers can't start their cars remotely, and a lot of them rely on that to start their cars. They can't log into the financing website in order to pay their bills. And so this is impactful for customers around the world. And we're starting to see this more and more where the operational impact of a ransomware case, sometimes by design, has these huge ripple effects, especially when it's targeted at someone who is a key supplier you can see that the impacts of that really spreading throughout our ecosystem. Absolutely. Now, when we think about ransomware as a whole, is it, you know, the individuals in the basements that we should be worried about? Is it the nation states? Is it cartels? I mean, what has been the development, the way that ransomware has been becoming uh, deployed more and more commonly? Yeah, it's not 13-year-olds in their mom's basement anymore. In fact, just within the last six, seven months, we've really seen a dramatic increase in ransomware as a service offerings. And you can think of that similarly to software as a service, where ransomware gangs are now investing a lot of money into a ransomware platform that is fully featured, um, has all the bells and whistles you might want, has an automated chat feature so that your victims can do self-service or communicate with uh, whoever's perpetrating the ransomware. And then these operators of the infrastructure will essentially rent access to affiliates. And the affiliates then will go off and break into a company and take over and actually install the ransomware. And sometimes there's even another player involved called an initial access broker. They might have stolen credentials for RDP, or maybe they sent a phishing email and got access to a bunch of people's computers. So their specialty is just getting access, and then they will take that access and sell it to the affiliates who will then rent the service uh, to install ransomware. So you can see this hacker economy is really developing more and more specialized roles, and these criminals are getting better and better at what they do. This is a job for them. It's not just a job, it's a career. Sure. 
So, so when we think about their, you know, the career, is the more is there more money in actually getting the data from the organization, or is it more money from actually causing disruption, operational outages, things of that nature? Yeah, well, that's a good question because ransomware can have the operational impact where they lock you up, but then there's also potential consequences relating to data exposure, as I believe you're alluding to. So these days, um, we see them also engaging in double extortion, uh, meaning they'll want you to pay a ransom to get your data back, and they'll say, pay us a ransom or we're going to publish all this stolen data to the world. And that's especially frightening when it's medical information, patient health information, when you have attorneys that get hacked and there's all kinds of very sensitive stuff or for manufacturers, you know, their crown jewels may be just put out there for any competitor to steal. So um, these can be very frightening. There can be long-term consequences uh, relating to a data breach because of that. So we have to worry a lot about both sides of that coin. Is there any cases that you can, you know, discuss with us and, and might maybe from a, a contractual standpoint, how business interruption has really um, started to become an issue with respect to ransomware? Oh, gosh, where to even start? Um, I have a, a long list of cases. The one that comes to mind first is a trucking company case that we handled a few years ago. This was very impactful because, of course, um, trucking companies support operations at retailers and other businesses around the country. And in this case, they were hit with ransomware. It was a Sunday morning and their operations were completely taken down. They couldn't access any of their servers. They didn't know where trucks were going. They couldn't track them. And um, once you start getting into a ransomware case, you realize how dependent even little things are because they couldn't, dis they couldn't dispatch trucks, but they also couldn't make deliveries because normally they would, once a truck gets close, they would reach out, they would schedule a delivery time. The information about who to reach out to would be sent to a system in the truck. None of that was happening because of their computer systems were down. So they literally had trucks for days on the side of the road, not making deliveries, not picking things up. And that undoubtedly impacted the operations of all those businesses that were depending on them. And I'll just give a, a quick example of, of a, you know, a fact pattern that I think unfortunately has occurred time and again in the last year of uh, COVID-related shutdowns, which is um, a retailer uh, trying to make uh, the most of a very difficult situation by selling only online and not bri in brick-and-mortar locations anymore during a holiday season, having a third-party distributor go down um, and essentially putting a, a complete stop to all distributions and fulfillment of orders during you know, a really difficult time for the retail industry. And this is a playbook that's happened um, all too frequently in the last year. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the online and e-commerce stuff because I think when we use like the cloud, for example, we expect that these online services are resilient and that our businesses can depend on them. And we've been seeing time and time again just this year that they can get hit with ransomware too. So one example was the TrialWorks case. Um, TrialWorks is a legal case management platform. It's used by over 2,500 firms and 40,000 users around the country and um, they were hit with ransomware. And when that happened, they first said they had experienced a hosting outage and then they came clean and said it was ransomware. So there were two issues, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh my goodness, what, 
what data was stolen from this platform, but also the headlines were screaming because attorneys were missing deadlines and law firms were filing for extensions and getting no guarantees from the cloud provider that they would be, have access to their files before the extended date had hit. So again, it can cause a lot of impacts, not just for the firms that use these cloud providers, but for their clients and then on throughout the system. So you bring up a great point. So when we're talking about cloud providers, how many of our clients have um, leverage with respects to negotiating with these cloud providers? Is there anything that they can do either from a technology or legal perspective? Sure, I'll start on the legal side. Uh, I mean, it's really, uh, there are many, many things you can do in the negotiation of a contract. There's all sorts of things you can ask for um, as the cloud customer um, from audit rights to um, access to uh, customer service representatives to very robust representations as to data privacy and security protections. Now, all of that depends on, on the business issue, which is what kind of rack, you know, what kind of leverage do you have with that cloud provider? We're talking about you know, some of the, the bigger names out there who, um, you know, we all know and, and so many companies use, you don't really have much negotiating power. Um, but if we're talking about uh, a large contract that you may have with, with a smaller or industry specific provider, then you may have more leverage. Um, and I think, you know, an important part of negotiating those agreements is talking with your business teams and figuring out how hard can we drive the legal the legal argument here for negotiation of, of your agreement. Sure. You know, I, and I think that ties right into the point that we were talking about earlier was this business interruption and dependent business interruption and really understanding who we're critically dependent on. Because if there's a cyber incident and we're not able to produce the goods you know, Mike, can you just talk about how that can affect a breach of contract and how a cyber incident can actually impact uh, the, the contractual terms that you have with your uh, suppliers or your vendors? Sure. So, and first, I think, you know, it might be helpful just to, to explain what we mean when we're talking about vendors and, and third-party um, providers. So here, you know, we're talking about um, sales agents, distributors, shipping and call center operators, um, it could be technology providers, anybody that you look to for infrastructure and application support. It could be hosted vendor solutions or file transfer services, like Sherry was talking about. Um, there was just another large file transfer um, breach in the legal space as well that was announced uh, very recently. Um, you know, that's who we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, this issue of incidents arising out of such third parties is not new. I think it's something that people in our space, including from the three of us, have been speaking about for a long time um, and telling our respective clients to pay attention to. I think if you look at statistics, you know, obviously nothing's apples to apples, but I think this just sort of gives you a picture on the fact that nothing much has changed. In 2016, there were several vendors running um, wide-scale surveys of um, CISOs and CIOs, and they found that about 
60, 62% of all cyber attacks that the interviewees had suffered arose from third-party suppliers or third-party vendors. Um, there's been a recent uh, survey that came out last year that shows that the respondents, and I think that may have been even a larger pool than the 2016 respondents, we're now talking about 92% of breaches coming from third parties. Um, so, you know, what can you do to protect yourself? Um, it really key is looking at the contracts that you have with your vendors. Um, negotiation of those agreements is it's for another day. So really the task at hand is focusing on the facts that you have before you, what rights do you have under your agreements, um, and then allowing those rights to guide you in terms of how you try to work with what at the end of the day is your business partner. Um, you know, depending on the criticality of that, that vendor, this could be very important and hard to replace, and that may inform how you negotiate, or it could be off the shelf and something that you can replace and you go in hard. Um, you know, this is a complicated question that also involves um, multiple players in the insurance space. So, you know, when we're talking about uh, business interruption, is it uh, the first party and do they look to their insurance? Can the first party look to perhaps uh, a provision in the contracts with the third party who suffered the breach? And maybe they have a provision in there that requires the vendor to name them as an insured on the vendor's policy. That one, at least in theory, is easy. Um, but, you know, I think, as Mark, as you know, then trying to figure out which insurance is going to kick in, whose insurance is going to kick in is, you know, a very complicated question that parties have to sort through. I think an initial thing that all companies should be doing is having a, a you know, a risk analysis for, you know, we always talk about risk analysis for third party risk assessment. And I think we'll probably talk about that a bit later, but you should also have a third party risk analysis from a contracting perspective. So that when the breach occurs or a cyber incident occurs, you don't have to go scrambling and contact outside counsel to figure out what your rights are. You have it. And then you make sure that that, that summary or digest is up to date. And then that's part of your playbook. And that is great advice, Mike, and, and, and thank you for that. Sherry, I mean, from a, from a technology standpoint, it sounds like, you know, there's a lot we can do from a, a, a legal standpoint. We need to make sure we have the right counsel to understand where we are in the situation and what the contract actually says. But from a technology standpoint, if, if the amount of incidents that are happening from third-party vendors, you know, shot up from 69% to 72% in a matter of four years, is there anything our listeners could do from a technology standpoint to make themselves or, or, or mitigate the risk, not necessarily completely uh, reduce it? Absolutely. I mean, one of the challenges right now is that we don't have visibility into suppliers' security for the most part. There aren't uh, like standards for supply chain security or even for notification. Like if you have a supplier that's been hacked, are they required to tell you? Um, or when you just start to notice an issue, um, we don't have, you know, when you go into a restaurant, it'll tell you their health inspection grade, 
A, B, C, but you don't have the same thing with the suppliers you work with. And so to Mike's point, I think it's really important to put in your contract um, information about you know, what the notification expectations are, how often you're going to be requiring a security review from them, because you deserve to have at least some uh, understanding of what level of security they have and how proactively they're addressing that. And it can be hard to require that of large suppliers, but I think that's where we need to really start working together as a community um, and working with our industry groups and having conversations like this, where we really decide as a community, we need to have some basic standards for supply chain security and better communication. Often when there is a ransomware incident, one of the biggest things people realize is number one, uh, the vendor isn't required to provide them most information. If your data is up there, you, you need to do an investigation. And that's when they realize, oh wow, this has to be done at my expense and maybe under my insurance and not at the expense of say a cloud provider or a, a third party in some cases. Um, but you may also at the same time not have access to the evidence you need to fully scope the breach or determine who needs to be notified. So those are some key issues that come up. And again, to Mike's point, you really want to proactively have those conversations in advance. Um, and I want to leave you with one last point, which is think about what suppliers have key access to your systems. These may be IT providers, software vendors. And then what providers have important access to your data and are holding confidential information on your behalf? And think about whether or not you can reduce that level of access, because that's a quick and simple way to reduce your risk. If you reduce their access, you reduce your risk and theirs as well. Sure. Yeah, I couldn't, sorry, I was just gonna say quickly, I can't agree more with that. Um, you know, not only is it good hygiene, it also ticks a lot of boxes on various legal regimes, which are starting to require, um, you know, data impact assessments. And I think those aren't going away. So only more jurisdictions are going to require that. So really, it's expensive and it's time consuming and it needs to be updated again and again, but it's definitely worth doing. In the ransomware claims that we're seeing, we're seeing a significant trend towards data exfiltration now. Does that then change the strategy that these uh, folks should be working with their third parties? Is there another piece that they should be contemplating with respect to data exfiltration? Absolutely. Up until recently, we saw a lot of organizations would discover ransomware on a workstation and the IT guy would go and clean off the workstation and they'd move on with their day. And the problem with that is nowadays ransomware is typically the tip of the iceberg. It's the last thing you see after a long range attack. So you may have first been infected with some kind of threat distributor like Emotet for weeks or months that's been lurking on your system, stealing your data. And then by the time they hit you with ransomware, boom, that's the last stage. And you actually may have a data breach on your hands. And you, in addition to that, the criminals may still have a foothold. So we've seen organizations that will get rid of those uh, couple of infected computers. They think they've cleaned them off and then poof, a week later, the criminals are back on the network because they haven't gotten to the root of the issue. So you these days you can't just take ransomware at face value. You must get to the root of the issue. You must look for the threat that got them on your system in the first place and make sure you have fully eradicated it. 
So, so Mike, when, when we're thinking about, you know, now we're getting into the actual data incident itself, how does it differ if there's personally identifiable information that's compromised versus if there's not? And then what should a business be thinking about um, in those very next steps? It's a great question. Um, well, so to, to start with, particularly in this third party context, whether you will and when you will find out uh, that there has been an incident is in, in many instances highly dependent on whether there is, is personal data at issue versus a pure classic ransomware fact pattern or a, a DDoS attack. Um, if, there is, if there is data at issue, you know, that we talk about the infamous patchwork of data breach notification statutes, both in each state and uh, most of the territories of the United States, um, and then, you know, geographically across the world. Um, they are extremely different, um, but you will know within a matter of 72 hours or less, um, or, uh, you know, it could be months. Um, now that's assuming that the party that suffered the breach is complying with their legal obligations, which we hope they are. Um, but there are, are several carves out here. So for instance, many of the state statutes will uh, carve out encrypted data from notifications. So you may not find out if the data that somehow left the company nevertheless remains encrypted. Um, on a turning back to the, the fact pattern of, of the classic ransomware, um, this is a great example of, of where there really is legal nuance and interpretation to be done. Um, if the, the data has simply been encrypted, there's no other evidence of access or exfiltration um, beyond the pure encryption and lock of the data you need to look at the legislative history and the meaning of access under the state statutes that apply, generally speaking, where there are individuals whose, you know, if, if um, Mike Kleinman sitting in New York's data was accessed, then we're looking at the New York data breach notification statute. Um, now, there are other sector, sectorial and industry specific notification statutes that may apply to a pure ransomware event. So under HIPAA, um, there's a specific test that may sweep in um, incidents that don't necessarily involve um, personal health information. Um, there's other, uh, you know, statutes that, that do similar things um, that could be a whole podcast unto itself. So Mike, um, how does that really affect the contractual requirements for a breach, given that each state has different notification laws and that they're changing and that you're starting to see information being uh, grouped into different ways? And then Sherry, it, understanding how do we know what information that we have so we know how to group it and provide it to Mike? I mean, that seems to be one of the biggest problems that clients have is they don't even know what information they have so then they can work with attorneys like Mike to be able to then uh, figure out how to best transfer it or better um, um, address it uh, contractually. 
and I'll just quickly address the, the first part of your question, Mark, which is um, you can contract out of it, but again, that's only contingent on your uh, leverage with your, with the, you know, third parties that you're dealing with. Um, I will actually just mention one follow-up to uh, the response I gave before, which is, um, you know, this issue is, is, at the top of regulators' minds with respect to the banking industry in particular, um, there is a first-of-its-kind four-hour downtime notification for service providers. Um, so, you know, we may see contractual breach notification limitations overtaken by statutes in the long run, but I wouldn't wait and I would use the leverage that you have to try to put into place your own private business to business notification deadline and standard. That's a great idea, Mike. Um, yeah, Mark, this is such a deep topic. I mean, there's the question of what data do you have? How do you figure out what got stolen? These days, 70% of ransomware cases involve the threat of data exposure. So, and that is a huge change. Even one year ago, it was pretty rare. And that means that today, the criminals are gonna let you know. They're gonna say, hey, we have your data, by the way. And um, you should not say, oh, I believe you. I'm just gonna like pay you money now um, because criminals sometimes don't tell the truth. So your next step needs to be, I need to verify that they actually do have this, especially because they may be tarnishing your name, putting online like, hey, we have this company's data. No, you take a step back. Um, so that involves a long process of, called proof of life, which is done in several different ways. We do this if uh, the data is being held hostage and they're threatening not to give it back uh, in that situation, um, because before you buy a decryptor, you wanna verify that they actually can decrypt it. And we also do it now if they're threatening to steal data. The most common way I see it done is that the criminals will send a long list of files and then they say, pick one at random and we'll, we'll send it to you. So they'll give you little samples. Now I've also seen criminals who say, here's a screenshot of all your data, see? And uh, then they refuse to respond to any requests for samples. And in that case, I suspect they did not actually steal the data. They took that screenshot from a file system when they were in our client system, and they didn't actually take anything. And that gets to some of Mike's points. You know, is it, have they actually acquired it or have they merely accessed it? Because that can affect your notification requirements in different states. So you really have to understand what you have and what they have. So with that being said, I think that this is a perfect place to wrap up our first segment. And then this would be a perfect place where we pick up part two of this particular podcast, when to pay the ransomware, not to pay the ransomware, and future regulations that are coming around ransomware. So so Sherry, Mike, um, with one minute left in today's podcast, would you mind just letting the listeners know where they could find you, where they could find the book, your LinkedIn, your Twitter, um, where you put out your information? You can drop me a line on LinkedIn. My name is Sherry Davidoff, and my, my book, Data Breaches, is available anywhere books are sold. And you can find me at Michael Kleinman, also on LinkedIn. Um, and that's a you know great place to start a conversation. Well, Michael, Sherry, thank you very much for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Mark.